Hello, and welcome to Plutarch's Greeks and Romans, a podcast taking you on a tour through ancient Greek and Roman history, seen through the lives of the most famous and influential people who lived it, with the ancient historian and biographer Plutarch as our guide and companion. Welcome to Episode 2, Part A, The Origin Myths of Romulus. In our very first episode, we covered Theseus, a legend himself, but today we get to meet the man who most believe founded Rome. Man or legend, you be the judge. Romulus was a towering figure to the ancient Romans who sought to bring glory to their city, which Romulus is said to have founded on April 21st, 753 BC. It turns out Romulus is in some very good company, as April 21st is my birthday also. So yeah, just saying. But was Romulus a real figure? Or was he a myth designed to create a noble origin story of the founding of one of the world's oldest and greatest capitals the world has ever seen? I don't know. But I'd like to think there was some truth to his legend. Lucky for us, Plutarch sure had some ideas himself and was kind enough to share them with us. So what is an origin myth? And what's all the fuss? They're just fictional stories, right? Well, some believe origin myths help cultures define who they are, through where they came from, forming guiding principles for the present generation and generations to follow. And for Romans, where one came from could dictate one's entire life. Would you receive a high-born education and begin training as an orator? Or were you destined to attend farms and serve in the military when duty called? And boy, did duty call a lot. So let's jump into the meat and potatoes of this episode and start with who was Romulus? Plutarch takes us through a gamut of origin myth stories, some more believable than others, but all are very fascinating with the winners being the more mystic of the stories, while the more straightforward versions are dismissed at the time as folklore. I mean, come on, if I were a patrician and can't link myself to the founder of Rome and a child of Mars, then why do I care to align myself with Romans if he was just another barbarian or vanquished Trojan? Plutarch describes many possible origin stories, all of which share many similarities and feature some of the same gods and ancient figures. Plutarch first describes a fierce nation of warrior nomads named the Pelasagians, rumored to have slayed and conquered their way across the continent, eventually putting down roots the river Tiber naming their new settlement eventually Rome, which would go on to forge the largest empire the world has ever seen. So, does this account sound reasonable or no? At this time in history, various tribes and hordes from all over Europe and the East were in flux. Tribes would expand or be vanquished through war, famine, slavery, or integration of many smaller tribes into bigger tribes. Italy was actually no different, so I do believe this is a potential narrative that fits the time period pretty well. Yeah, and early Roman history is littered with these stories of Italian tribes fighting each other with the Roman tribe emerging victorious, of course. So there is some credibility to this origin myth, I agree. Plutarch next moves to my favorite origin story, which I like to call the Revenge of the Trojans, which is set at the time Agamemnon was pillaging and burning the great city of Troy to avenge his dead brother's pride. While a few distraught Trojans fled the city loaded up on some surviving triremes and set out to find a new home, a new Troy, and rebuild their society. After weeks and months at sea, lost, desperate, starving, they wound up on the banks of Tuscany at the mouth of the river Tiber. Shortly after landfall, a high-born woman by the name Roma, sick and tired of living at sea, and frankly, who could blame her, plotted with the other women to end the journey by sea and set up a permanent home in this new lush land situated on a few hills with a life-giving river flowing through. To ensure their permanency and settle their men's restless legs, Roma led the women to the ships in secret, burning them to the ocean's floor, forcing the caravan, 
of defeated Trojans to abandon the impossible task of finding the perfect place to rebuild a new Troy. The men, after a short while, found peace with their new land and honored Roma with the naming of their new settlement, Rome. What about this story makes it your favorite one? Well, I was always one who rooted for the Trojans over the Greeks and was always sad that the Trojans vanished the way they did. So the notion Rome sprung to life from the vanquished Trojans brings me a silent joy that I find hard to explain. I like to think that these fleeing Trojans would one day have the last laugh. And when Rome eventually took all of Greece under her Republican cloak after Macedonia fell in 146 BC, it felt like a cosmic justice was done. Though Rome wouldn't have absolute control over all Hellenistic Greeks until the fall of Alexandria in 30 BC, it would be fair to say the circle of revenge was completed in Macedonia and the souls of Troy were avenged. Also, a little known fact of the story is that Roma, among other backdrops, was rumored to be the daughter of Telephus, who was the son of the greatest Greek and Roman hero of all, guess who? Hercules. Further adding to the notion Rome was ordained by the gods and given their strength. It's a fabulous story which showcases the human spirit as one great city fell and in its ashes a new great city arose. Nothing like a Hercules reference to bolster an origin story as well. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Aligning oneself with a god was not an uncommon practice in ancient times, and in most cases was a political necessity. The next three origin stories Plutarch does not give much real estate to, but nevertheless, he felt they were important enough to give some brief mention. The first origin Plutarch describes is that of a noble born by the name Romanus, son of Ulysses, who founded Rome. Of course, Ulysses is the Latinized name for Odysseus from Homer's epic, The Odyssey. This links Romanus with Rome with a very famous lineage, Ulysses. Well, Plutarch's second account claims Romus, son of Amathian, founded Rome. Now, in Greek mythology, Amathian refers to four individuals. Amathian, king of Ethiopia. Amathian, king of Samothrace, the son of Zeus and Electra. Amathian was an aged member of Cepheus's court. And lastly, our Amathian, referred to today, a Trojan loyalist and companion to Aeneas, whose son Romos would go on to found Rome. Though this timeline is a bit murky, similar to my favorite origin where Trojans founded Rome. Plutarch's third description indicates that a king named Romus, king of the Latins or better known as the Album Kings, defeated the Tyrrhenians, who many agree were fearless barbarians raiding the coasts and were originally from Thessaly, founded Rome when the fighting ended. None of these stories seem very exaggerated or bring in supernatural forces to the equation. No. They are a bit boring, with a couple of highborns and a group of conquerors who just happen to find the perfect place to settle a new community. Now, not to invoke Occam's razor, but in these origin descriptions, is the simplest answer the highest probability of being right? Well, you be the judge as we jump into the safest, most widely believed origin story, portraying Romulus in the best light, the noblest light, the godliest light. Okay, so sounds like the next few origin stories differ in substance a bit than the ones that we've heard so far. Yes, and I want to discuss my favorite version between the less exciting stories to separate from what Plutarch and his contemporaries felt were the more logical origins of Romulus and Rome. The next two origins begin to sound more like famous Greek fables than a historical account, and I like to think Plutarch organized his origin stories so we can begin to see how perhaps the two main themes of these previous accounts, a conquering tribe, or a defender of Italy founded Rome, or those from Troy founded Rome, perhaps were more logical 
and with the coming accounts be more of a libation to the gods. The fact only a few cities ever reached greatness like Rome or Athens, or the eventual rise of Alexandria, makes it easy to see the importance that God's favor were to the people living in these cities, and how that impacted societal norms and how people behave as a result to achieve their personal, family, and state goals. To the ancients, favor from the gods was earned through godly upkeep, and many believed their fortunes were tied to these premises. So a noble-born living in Rome, if successful, could be interpreted by society as a whole that the gods favor them, and hence, they are deserving of their high station and work harder themselves to appease the gods and attempt to rise. Now it should be noted that most authors at the time did more or less agree that Romulus himself gave Rome her name, but disagreed about his birth and caregivers. Some believed he was son to Aeneas and Dexithia, daughter of Forbes, and was born with his brother Remus, and both were carried into Italy by a flooding river. And although all other vessels were lost in the flood, the two siblings ended up safe on the shores of the Tiber, saved, and a new community named after the boys was founded. Some say the revered Roma, from my favorite tale, married to Latinius, Telemachus' son, became mother to the boys. Others went as far as to say that Aeneas' daughter, Amelia, procreated with the god Mars, and Romulus and Remus were the result. Interesting. And as you mentioned, it sounds as if a lot of the same people and themes are recurring from tale to tale, and it even sounds as if the tales were being manicured later on to fit a certain narrative, or possibly to boost the fortunes of those born many centuries later. Ryan, I think you're bang on. Many of these stories are very similar, but differ by who or what eventual lineage actually cast the stone. So before we jump into Plutarch's main origin story, there is another origin story which is similar, and it goes a little something like this. A king of Alba by the name Tarketius once had a vision. His vision was a ghastly apparition of a male that hung out in his house for several days. Tarketius, unable to understand it, or his purpose being in his home, ventured to Tathius in Tuscany, where he received guidance from the resident oracle. The oracle told uh, Tarkidius not to worry, that the apparition was waiting to mate with a virgin, so that a highly renowned, lucky brute boy would be born. Tarkidius, presumably foaming at the mouth, headed home and immediately told the prophecy to one of his daughters, commanding her to go see the apparition and give herself to him. Like a normal person, his daughter was probably not in favor of this idea to have sex with a ghost and had her servant go in her place. Of course, once Tarkidius became aware of this, he was enraged and punished both of them by locking them in a room to sew clothing all day and at night, other servants were ordered to undo everything they had sewn so they could begin again the next day. As far as ancient punishments went, this was pretty tame and I'm sure both the daughter and servant were just happy their heads remained affixed to the top of their shoulders. The servant eventually gave birth to twins, whom Tarkidius commanded Tarithius, one of his servants, to dispose of. Tarithius, the servant, doing what many in the ancient world did when casting off unwanted babies, went to the river's edge to drop them, but fearing the rising water, instead laid them on the ground a few feet away from the raging river, assuming the flood waters would drown them eventually. However, the water subsided and a she-wolf and various species of birds came to the little king's rescue and kept them healthy and strong until our herdsmen spotted them and took them in. 
You were probably wondering when the famous She-Wolf was going to enter the origin story, and well, your wait is over as she makes her debut, and we will be talking about her more in the next and final origin story, which really encompasses aspects from all the origin stories into a more coherent origin story that must have satisfied the superstitious Romans the most. It really sounds like these stories were evolving from, you know, a simple conquering tribe or or refugees from Troy to gods, ghosts, sex with ghosts, oracles, she wolves. It's really crazy. And then there's no hard proof to back any of this up. It's, It's curious where these ideas came from. Absolutely. So let's get to it. The story which Plutarch presents as the most believable was first recorded by the Greek Diocles perhaps one of the first Roman historians, and subsequently, subsequently relied heavily on by the like of Plutarch and others such as Fabius Pictor, a Roman senator and a historian from the 3rd century BC, who reaffirmed Diocles' account of this origin story. As you may recall from earlier comments, the more fantastical origin stories better align with whose views? Oh yes, the senatorial class, where creating an advantageous origin story to perhaps benefit their families present and future fortune would not be out of line to suggest. Once again, as the last account reveals, the kings of Alba are back and center stage in our last tale of the origin of Romulus and the founding of Rome. Before we venture further, perhaps we should briefly introduce the kings of Alba, as they feature front and center in many of our stories today, including the next and final origin story. The lineage of the kings of Alba is said to have ascended from Aeneas, and continued in linear fashion, which eventually devolved into a lengthy accession of two brother kings, Numitor and Amulius. Numitor and Amulius were brothers, and both inherited the throne. A difficult situation, and probably safe to say, trouble would brew, and brew hard, and brew fast. Amulius, in his bid to gain the upper hand over his brother, after both were made king, made a clever proposal to Numitor where they would divide the kingdom into equal shares. The first option was one brother would be granted the whole kingdom, and the second option was ownership of all the treasure and gold that was brought from Troy. Numitor was quick to claim the kingdom, while Amulius was secretly pleased to take the gold. Amulius' ruse was a success, as the kingdom had no money, and Amulius was able to use the money he had taken in his deal to slowly break down Numitor's hole in the kingdom, eventually taking the entire kingdom from him, as support for Numitor was no match for the tempting offers the elite were made by Amulius. To secure his reign, Amulius had Numitor's daughter made a vestal, dooming her to a life of solitude and unable by law to have children, and ensuring he would not need to compete against a potential heir. Of course, as to be expected in ancient times, the daughter of Numitor, some believed her name to be Sylvia, fell pregnant, Amulius, perhaps, made his first obvious error. After some chirping from his own daughter, Antho, let Sylvia live in confinement until the birth. Darn babies. Always ruining the best laid out plans. (laughs) Yes, agreed. However, apparently the birth was quite a success, as two large and strong baby boys were presented to the king. Amulius was so distraught over the sight of these twin boys and the threat they posed, he had one of his loyal servants named Festulius carry them away in a small trough to be dumped in the river. But the roaring waters of the river scared Festulius, and he left them just far enough away from the edge that when the waters did rise, they didn't envelope the trough completely, but rather carried it to a safe place near a wild fig tree, which they called Ruminalius, either from Romulus or more likely from ruminating, 
as cattle would seek the fig tree's shattery relief from the hot Italian heat. Lucky for the boys, they landed under this tree, or surely the heat would have vanquished them, and they may not have survived before, as legend has it, a she-wolf came across the boys and would nurse them, keeping them strong and protected them from the wildly beasts of the forest. The she-wolf also employed the services of a revered woodpecker to keep the boys well-fed. Both the she-wolf and woodpecker were esteemed wholly to the god Mars. Wait, Mars is the god of war, right? I mean, I can understand she-wolf, but woodpecker? How is woodpecker the sacred bird of Mars, the god of war? <laughs> Uh, I don't know what to tell you, but hey, you know, what better parents could you ask for, right? However, when we peel back the fable a bit, we realize that eventually it was Fatilius and his wife who raised the boys after this episode by the river. And the fact the Roman word lupe had two meanings, a wolf, the other a woman of loose life, a very polite term for a prostitute, we can possibly see how the former meaning of lupe was more desirable to the assertion Romulus was born of a prostitute. So Ramas henceforth was raised by Lupe, the she-wolf, and not Lupe, Fatulius's loose wife. Okay, wow, I didn't know that about the double meaning of Lupe. Interesting. So we are beginning to see perhaps a true story of orphan children taken in by a servant of the king and his wife, most likely in secret. A secret likely kept from Amulius, but possibly a lifeline for Numitor, who may have helped keep this a secret, providing the boy's caregivers with resources deserving of noble-born children to ensure a noble education and be altered in later centuries to fit the narrative Ramas is of Gali descent. It is rumored Festulius named the boys Ramas and Rima from their more mystic origin of being suckled by a she-wolf or known to the Romans as Ruma, the dug, meaning to be suckled by a tit. But others still claim their names were more of an endearment to the old name of the river Tiber, Rumo. Regardless, the boys were raised received a proper high-born education, and quickly grew into very noble, adventurous, brave young men, attempting all endeavors traditionally chased by young men, regardless of the danger posed to them. Romulus quickly became, began to exceed Remus in stature, and began to accumulate accomplishments in excess of Remus, becoming the favorite brother, and was seen as a developing statesman, as his dealings with neighbors were that of a respectful and fair negotiator. Now, both Romulus and Remus would take up legitimate pastimes with liberal studies, hunting, running, fighting crime, righting wrongs, and their reputations began to grow, and they began to become famous amongst their peers and those in lower stations of life. But of course, the king's court was not impressed and did nothing to further their cause. It's hard to believe the true identities of the boys eluded Amulius, the king of Alba, who meticulously planned the downfall of his own brother Numitor seizing almost complete control over the entire kingdom. But stranger things have happened, not to mention a she-wolf suckling a baby back to health. Fair. Definitely fair. The Callus, which would launch the boys into direct conflict with Numitor and eventually lead to the showdown between the two and Romus's eventual accession, ascension as Rome's first king, began as Amulius and Numitor engaged in a quarrel between their two cowherds. Amulius, upset his cowherds were being driven from pastors, without explanation, seemed to have convinced Romulus and Remus to intervene on his behalf, angering Numitor. This insight provides a little speculation that perhaps Amulius didn't know the secret and was merely leveraging the fame of these two young men for his advantage. That's a good point. Why would Amulius seek the assistance of the only two people who posed a legitimate threat to his reign and legacy? Although perhaps Amulius was once again using his prowess to solve his own issue while gaining the trust of the two rising stars. 
It's very interesting to speculate what truths the king was or was not aware. As a pragmatic man, which Amulia seems to have been, in my opinion, keeping this truth close to his chest, betting the boys weren't aware of their lineage was probably the safer move. Also, what better way than to minimize their threat than to embrace them and perhaps down the road adopt and make them his successors? But again, I speculate. As the quarrel began to shift towards Amulius's favor, Numitor became frustrated and accused the brothers of recruiting and fomenting rebellion in an attempt to sway the brothers from their course and leave the quarrel to be resolved between Amulius and himself. When these political attacks failed, he resorted to a strategy of violence and intimidation by kidnapping Remus when he was traveling light of men. And I'm sure his instincts were to end Remus, but held back, realizing this could push Amulius to rethink his position on his dear old brother Numitor and lay into him to the point where he may not come out the other end. Better to keep Remus as potential leverage than immediately gratifying his lust for revenge. It's a bit confusing here. I mean, why would Numitor threaten his own heirs, and why would he shy away from punishing Remus out of fear of Amulius's reaction? Yes, I agree. It seems like that, but perhaps... Numitor realized that Amulius had some sway over the boys and would want them alive, providing Numitor with a bargaining chip. Or perhaps Numitor didn't know who the brothers really were, and hence, they meant nothing to him and were fair game for this type of violence and political theater. But I agree, it does not really jive. However, when it comes to ancient history, this sort of confusion or contradictions are fairly normal. News quickly spread over Remus's misfortune, and Fatulius upon hearing this, went immediately to Romulus, told him the truth about his and Remus's origin, impressing upon him the importance of both their lives, and called on Romulus to take action. Romulus answered the call to action and rushed to his twin brother's rescue. So at this point, Romulus will drop everything and risk his life to run to his brother's rescue. I wonder how this relationship ends up deteriorating. For that answer, you will have to wait until next episode, The Life of Romulus, Part B. Thanks for listening to Plutarch's Greeks and Romans podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, feel free to head over to our blog at PlutarchsGreeksRomans.com or check out Plutarch's Greeks and Romans on Facebook. And don't forget to leave us a review on whichever podcast service you're using. See you next time.